thoughts on new, <laughs> nice. what are you what are what are your thoughts on new watch fairs and what is Henry's thoughts on digital watch fairs? I'm assuming what they're saying is uh, what are your thoughts on the watchmaking fairs nowadays, like Basel and stuff, and then what is well, what are your thoughts on having a digital uh, watchmaking fair? So I'm gonna tackle question number two first. Right. So I feel like the digital, because um, everyone's going on Zoom, right? There, there's no denying um, uh, Zoom conferences, video conferences, you know, putting stuff online that, yeah. you know, because the, you know, COVID-19 uh, strikes and the industries had to kind of pivot. Um, with that said, um, I feel like it's, it's inevitable, right? So like this COVID-19 jump-started everyone to ensure that they had an online presence. Whether or not it's good, uh, whether or not like people like it, um, that's a different story. Like personally, I find it a little weird because you know when you go to the conferences or when you go to you know a lot of different um, gatherings and meetups and such, it's it's the fact that you can meet people, play with watches, and then kind of have side conversations with people you think are interesting. You know, so it's, so so the issue I find is that the Zoom conferencing it's, it's only like it's focused on one person, the speaker, essentially. And it's mm. always that, like, it's a, it's a singular format where it's, like, one I person. See, I, I see what right? you're saying. So, so, essentially, what you're saying is, like, the social aspect of, like, these watchmaking pairs is lost in the sense uh, No, where I mean, that? it's there. It's just in a different format. Right? I'm pretty, you can, for sure, you can start about the noise. I mean, for sure, you can break out and have, like, little side conversations when you're video chatting, you know, but there's, there's nothing, like, you know, when you're meeting someone and then, you know, you guys are sharing drinks and you're just like, oh, what do you think about this? You know? Stuff yeah, like the, that, you the, know? I heard the, I've always heard the, the craziest parties from Switzerland happen after drinking and after the events. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, it, it, nothing good comes out of hanging out past 1130. Now, what I, what I would, how I feel about these watchers is like, um, I mean, like the whole Basel and stuff. It, I know they they've traditionally done this in the past, and I know that was their way of releasing new watches and all that stuff. But I think having some form of a digital aspect of it is actually good for the industry, just so that they can reach more people. Um, in the sense where I, I, I'm not 100 percent sure if they're releasing this to the public or if it's only to the same to or to the same people. Uh, who would attend these events just having them pay for a digital format. But if it's free and it's public and it's online for everyone to view, I think that'll be, that'll give them more exposure um, yeah. in, in that digital sense, you know, but like you said, I think there are some aspects that are lost, but I feel at the same time, what they need to do is they need to introduce, I mean, like, you know, Basel world is always the same old releases, you know, it's, it's the same old things over and over again. You know, the first couple of days is for media, and then afterwards, it's it's a release to the public and to the all the fans and audience. Um, but it, the the concept of it to someone who's not even in the industry, like if someone was just an enthusiast, having them fly all the way to Switzerland and just to see these watches in person, like the first couple of days, it, it doesn't even feel like much. You know, like uh, you you can barely even enjoy the fair at that point if you even want to call it a fair. But yeah. I also feel like there's a there is a an experience an almost like a adventure when someone gets on a plane and takes a trip to Switzerland, you know, because that's kind of the heart of Swiss watchmaking, right? Yeah. And so the, in in the past, the brands all thought they had to attend SIHH or Basel and all that, but now, like, I mean, look at it. Now it's an open market. Now none of them exist, right? So yeah. the the brands, everyone's doing their own version of releases, you know, like so you would. Go to um, find an online medium, whether it's Houdinki or whoever, uh, and then kind of do your releases with them. Mm. All right. I mean, it, now if you had to redo, what would you say is the better? You, so you actually agree with in-person meetings for these watch fans. So you agree with having people come out. There is, I feel like, uh, pros and cons. Right, okay. I feel like if you record it, if we have this stuff live, live stream the event and have you know, because because nothing beats like holding your watch, holding a watch you want to buy or looking at something new. Like if you go to a, you go to a watch, watch an online uh, car fair, you know, or watch an online test drive, or would you be 
more intrigued to sitting in, in the car test driving itself before you purchase. That's kind of my analogy, right? Like the new car smell. Like, I agree. I like uh, like what Adam Adam does with um, Red Bar. Like that stuff, I agree with. That stuff is interesting because you're getting together with other people who are genuine. You know what I mean? Whereas these watch fairs, I feel like for the most part, when they're presenting these stuff, they're not talking with you. They're talking to you. I don't know if that. I don't know if that's a clear concept, but yeah. I feel like if these watch brands decided to talk more with people, they would get significantly further than if they were to do what they're doing now in a sense where traditionally the way they've done is always uh, uh, talk to the customer, not with the customer. Yeah, and I feel like that's why I, well, part of what I do with watchmaking project, you know, when we service the watch, um, I don't, at times I can get technical, right? But for the most part, I try to keep it as straightforward as possible. And I, I, I kind of t- explain the process so that they understand almost like 110% of what's wrong with their watch, why we're doing this. Like if there's any broken parts, we show them where the part is. You know, like they see this is what I see or I try to show them what I see, you know? So there's a common, there's a common ground. And, and so what you're saying is it's true. It's an issue, but it's not only in, you know, it's across, you know, everywhere, right? When it comes to teaching, when it comes to the policing, it's, I mean, everything, right? Like, it's instead of, instead of having a community or, or conversation-based uh, way of uh, learning and instructing and teaching, people are doing it like, it's me teaching you, me showing you, you know? Mm. That, that kind of approach. So, if, now, if you were a watch brand, how would you sell? Would you be doing watch fairs or would you be doing more like red bar meetings that were that, that sort of setup? I would, <clears throat> well, first of all, I have no advertising budget, I have no marketing team. So immediately that rules me out for like uh, a large fair. Okay. Obviously would do like small person meetings, you know? Okay. Yeah, of course. You know, cause I mean, if you have a watch brand, if you're developing a watch brand, you, you want to show them your product, right? So the more product, the more hands I get to touch my product, the more likely it is to have someone purchase. So would you be online or would you, I mean, I'm, I guess, would you be doing any of these like uh, uh, watches and wonder, watches wonder? Um, would you be doing red bar a lot more? Would you be doing, how would you set it up? I would, if I had the bandwidth and capacity, I'd do them all. Okay, let's just say you have your current bandwidth and capacity. I would probably do like a couple of online events and more like in-person meetups. I can agree with that. I think I would do in-person meeting in-person meetings um, with the local groups. I would also hit up all the red bars. If any micro brand is listening or any watchmaking brand is listening, they, they should take these advice right here very, very seriously. Do as much meetups as you can with local watch enthusiasts. From there, generate a good audience. Reach out to all the so-called influencers on social media and see what they think about it. Get actual real-life information. Get real-life data. Uh, hit up all the red bars across the United States. Reach out to all the organizers. Do as much digital watch fairs as the, or digital uh, uh, live meetings or even go behind the scenes and show as much um, behind the scenes as possible. Communicate well with the audience. I honestly feel like maybe they should be also reaching out and, and, and getting feels. Get, instead of traditionally the way it's been done where watch brands are showing you what they've done, what they should do is reach out to clients and audiences and see what they want to be done. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, and it also goes back to what... Oh, sorry, continue. No, 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 go, go. You said? I was going to say, it goes back to what you were saying, right? Like, developing relationships, having a conversation, right? Like, that, that's key to anything. No one, no one is going to close a million-dollar deal from a cold call, right? It may happen, right? You may be lucky, but, like, for the most part, it's, like, the referrals you get friends and family, people who, who you talk to, relationships you develop, that is golden, right? Like nothing beats that, that, that aspect of, of doing business. And it could be with anything, right? It could be from watchmaking to, you know, to big business deals. 
Yeah. So I agree. Oh, that was good. You know what I found out just yesterday? I found what? out I found out about this live video streaming service called Twitch. Maybe I'm old, or maybe like I'm I'm late to the scene. But so you just are, found out about Twitch. I just found out about Twitch. Apparently they make. Let me like, guess. You, you you didn't know TikTok exists either. Well, I heard about TikTok. <laughs> I just didn't hear about Twitch. Apparently there really. People, there are people who are making five to six to seven figures on Twitch. Apparently, just live streaming their video games. There, there's this dude who who's suing Twitch, the company, for twenty five million dollars because because he uh, he whacked off to these gamer girls so bad that he he like what? He so the guy is suing, the guy is suing Twitch because he jerked off really bad to, to the gamer hot girls girl on on Twitch. Yeah, yeah. what the. The whole market. <laughs> the can you imagine? Can you imagine? That, that only, like only someone in California could do something like that. That sounds like a McDonald's. Injure himself hot. and then sue the company. Man, I mean, if you told me when I was younger that you could make video, I mean, back in the days, playing video games was like something you just personally did because it was fun, you know. But to make six to years seven years figures, years. man, shit. Yeah. I'm Twitch has I'm been evaluating my life choices right now, man. I feel like I gotta, I feel like I gotta hop on a computer and try it out. Yeah, you're you're missing uh, when you hop on a computer. You're missing uh, what is it? Uh, honey bun, rice krispies, and like the usual bad snacks uh, every gamer would need. I mean, think about it. If you make a living from Twitch, no type of quarantine or lockdown is gonna have a significant impact on your uh, on your bottom line. I mean, shit. Talk about working from home. Yeah, uh, it it grew the fan base kind of like this whole you know, COVID nineteen shelter in place. That's insane, man. I just found, I was just doing some research on it last night, and I was just like, "Holy crap!" Maybe I'm just way too late to the scene. But yeah. I can't. I do you believe some of these people are making like yeah. two million dollars just playing Counter Strike? Yep. Two I, I million dollars it. just playing Counter Strike. If you they're, told me that, they're professional gamers, like professional gamers. Well, what makes a professional gamer? If you make some sort of income from it, right? I mean, well, yeah. Well, you know, like the guys who want. Um, not, it wasn't Counter Strike. It was like a oh, Call of Duty, it was like a Call of Duty, or some whatever game that 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 some some dude in Norway or whatever got like a couple million dollars for because that was a prize money. Dude, I'm so jealous. I feel like I I feel like I've made wrong life choices in my life at this point. Hey, it's not too late to change your career path. <laughs> no BS switching. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. And physically, no BS with you. All right, well, let's get back. Let's get let's get back to some of these questions. Um, oh, actually, I think this is a good question for you. Um, there was someone who reached out and was talking about the Omega movements uh, versus the Rolex movements. Um, what are your thoughts on the Omega movements versus the Rolex movement? Um, they're both good, right? I mean, Omega and Rolex have been sitting on top of the industry for years. Um, when it comes to Rolex, uh, movement-wise, they have, I think, about three to four calibers, right? They have a ladies' caliber, a men's caliber, and a cornerback caliber. Yeah, they have the 15s, the 20s, the yep. 22s, 30s, the, 31s, and then... 30s, yeah. Now, yeah. now so, they have, like, 32s and 41s, etc. So it's... It's, they have in their production line three kind of calibers that are always in production, right? Which is which is good because that means the you know each generation you know the 15s, the the 20s, the 30s like each generation they know exactly what common issues are and like parts for for replacement all that stuff they have all that capacity. Omega. I feel like sides sits on the side of more of innovation. So they have a, a range, a breadth of calibers, right? So they have the, you know, the vintage Omegas, they have the Lamagna calibers that the Frederick Piguet's, they utilize the Bois de Puis, you know, like it's, it's more, there's more variety when it comes to Omega calibers. Now, what are your thoughts? I mean, I mean, I mean this, this, brand, right? Yeah, so. there's so much I can get into right now. Well, actually, what are your thoughts on Omega movements in terms of like the coaxial? Do you believe they're more accurate than traditional 
Swiss Lover movement? Um, the new, the newer ones, uh, yes, and and in accurate sense of because of the type of material that's utilized. So it's more like silicon hairspring, uh, anti-magnetic uh, uh, properties and materials that's utilized in the escapement. Um, that that all like plays a factor. Where you know, like if you walk through a big big magnet with a regular Swiss lever, the you know it throws your watch out of whack. Yeah, but wouldn't you wouldn't you argue that the reason why they, uh, Daniels invented that coaxial concept was to do uh, for for better accuracy and less involvement of oiling and lubrication? Yes, but also so, what what people don't realize is Daniels escapement is made of gold. Right, like the escape wheel, a lot of materials that make it less oiling or very little oil is because the material is used. And to be fair, it's not practical to mass produce gold in a you know like a common town. Wait, so Daniel's original coaxial concept was made out of gold? I think one of the wheels, like you know, was was gold. Yeah, I mean, it's a, oh, I didn't know that. It it it, it helped uh, maintain uh, certain efficiencies. Um, in not having to, to oil some stuff. And if, now, you, if you treat gold right, I mean, it's, it's gold, right? It's soft yeah. enough, and, you know, smooth enough that it doesn't, you won't have that friction of certain parts. I would figure that if you had a gold wheel, it would get worn out just 10 times faster, no? If it's gold on steel, yes. But or you're saying the whole rugby, thing. Or oh. gold on gold, you know what I mean? Like, like they're, they're mature, I mean, I don't want to, I, by far I'm no expert, probably have to read the George Daniel books again. <clears throat> but, um, but yeah, they, uh, there were certain materials of that that made it that, you know, when I was talking with uh, Roger Smith, you know, that, that was kind of like my two cents of it, right? Like Omega's made, Omega, the Omega coaxial caliber is based on George Daniel, but it's not George Daniel, that makes any sense. Yeah, because right, I, I, Omega R uh, shrunk that down to be able to mass produce it. So, would you say that the current? Yeah. So, I'm assuming you're saying that the current escapement is superior than the previous version of the coaxial. Well, well, every version because the coaxials came out. Uh, I think the 2500A uh, was the first like Omega's. No, actually, I think the first was an IWC, and then Swatch Group bought it from IWC. So Daniels went to IWC first. IWC had the idea of the of the coaxial escapement, and then I think IWC sold it over to Swatch Group or Omega, and Omega took the idea and kind of rolled with it. Well, I know roll. I know Omega. Uh, I know Daniels also went to Patek Philippe, and then Rolex as well. Um, and he was rejected every step of the way. Because hmm. it, it's hard. It's hard to mass produce that idea, right? Unless you, unless you you have a big R and D. Um, team, which Swatch Group obviously clearly does, because they own kind of the whole supply chain, right? They have oils, they have R and Ds, they have moving houses, they have factories. Now I know, I know, uh, uh, Fenwick. Fenwick used to say. So for those who don't know, Dan Fenwick used to work for Omega. He's like one of the uh, one of the knowledgeable guys over at Omega. Um, he used to say that the George Daniels, co- the the current Omega coaxial is no longer. Well, he he said that the Omega coaxial is so far ahead that you can't even give George Daniels credit for the current coaxial. No, no, I I, I agree. They went through so much. Like there were times I've sat on the bench and worked on these uh, coaxial movements, and it's like every other. Um, year or every other couple of months uh there'd be you know kind of like a, a press release of like oh we've made an upgrade to this movement to take care of this problem you know like please upgrade to this part to to manage this problem but see here's the thing between i feel like rolex and omega is and that speaks volumes in their collections and how they approach watchmaking is omega's not scared to make these mistakes right to go out and try the stuff right mm. whereas rolex sticks to like the core of what they know which you know to your point, isn't bad, but you know, like I, I like the idea that me working at Swatch Group in five years, 
I've practically touched majority of the movements in the industry without having to work for all the brands. You know, because Omega had all these calibers, had all these movements. We had the Lamagna movements. You know, we were working on the Frederick Gate, you know, chronographs, the high-end stuff that the AP uses and all the other brands uses, you know? So, like, yeah, that for- armed me with knowledge of, like, a multitude of movements and doing multiple like, different things without, without ever realizing it. Because I obviously took it for granted working for Omega. Yeah, for those who don't know, Henry Henry used to work for Omega, and Henry passed. Oh, um, yeah, uh, uh, I, I believe Henry passed almost all. The, uh, yeah, Henry actually passed all the exams for Omega to be um, fully certified. Um, not include. Uh, this is not just your basic level one, where it's like the old WME, um, but there are two and three more additional tests after that to become a fully certified uh, yeah. under uh, SWAT group. Um, but I mean, speaking of like you were saying about the innovations, I mean, what do you think about Lubrifar? I mean, I don't, I don't agree with Lubrifar. I, uh, I or between uh, uh, honest, an honest piece for me, I fucking hate Lubrifar. Like in the past, when I didn't know, I would like take a new wheel, put it in a movement, and like think it was good. Oh, dude, that watch came back all gunked up and yeah, like, that's what they're freaking saying. ugly. And then and then and then the guy was like, "Did you service this watch?" I'm like, "I fucking did service this watch, you son of a," you know. And then and then and then later I realized they're all coated Lubrifar. And then when you roll the so if those of you don't don't know, Lubrifar is um, like Omega's version of Epilum or, or Fixel Drop. It's a treatment they use on escape wheels, you know. Um, and normally to and apparently the coating helps it last longer. You know, it protects it from, you know, the more more damaging properties of, I guess, the pallet jewel. But so geniuses thought it would be a good idea to coat them. And obviously I'm not going to argue with them. So I would just take it, take a, a batch of them, kind of pre-clean them beforehand, put them in the, <laughs> in, the in the machine and like have my little section of, of clean the skate wheels, like if I ever need to use them. So you had to use Lubrifar the entire time when you worked at Omega, correct? And no, uh, the parts come treated with it already. So if I were to use a part, oh, pre-treated, would... it was pre-treated in, in the package part. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, I'm not a big fan of it either. What uh, are your thoughts for? Because I, mean, I you prefer work for some brands yourself. I I prefer the traditional. Epilum Fixer Drop. I think uh, I think they did a good job on that. Now the problem with a lot of people who don't know about Fixer Drop is that they think that the bottle lasts forever. But the minute you open that bottle of Epilum, the best results you'll get with it is within the first month or two. Not even like you're you're only really supposed to keep it for like a month after you open it. Uh, the problem is that people open it and then they use the same res- they pour a little bit out into a small container and they use that epilum for months and months on end. The problem with that is that the original epilum bottle is only good for about a month after you open it because the not not many people know, but the epilum itself, the active ingredient in epilum is like point zero zero like point zero zero three percent or some crap. It's like 99% and more just solution. Yeah. Which is why when you pour it out, it just evapor- uh, vaporizes so fast. But um, I prefer Epilum, long story short. I mean, there, there's a reason why uh, some people get terrible results with Epilum is because either their Epilum is, bad, is, is poor, it's old or outdated, or they're not treating it correctly uh, after. They're not doing the treating process correctly and even then there are a lot of uh, people who say that they don't 100 percent know the best results for epilum yet but the current uh tried and true methods have been working for a long time um, and for those of you who don't know what that process is uh anthony can you take us through what the a proper way of epilum coding looks like i mean long story short you're you, the reason why we want to epilum coat anything is so that we that we ensure that the uh, the surface the surface uh, layer the surface tension of any any specific part we want to put epilum on changes so that the oil stays there. So long story short, to make it as simple as I possibly can, uh, if I want to put oil on the escapement, let's just say, and I want the oil to remain on the escapement, I'm going to epilum treat the escape. 
to ensure that the oil just doesn't like fly away from that speed. Uh, long story short, when you dip something with epilum, you also uh, there are very varying degrees of processes. So each brand will do it a little differently. I, I, I don't know how they did it over Omega, but they used to recommend everyone uh, after you epilum treat it, you use heat to actually uh, vaporize the actual solution on it so that the concentration of epilum is better. Um, some people have actually gone away from the heat. They just decided to put it on their bench and like cover it and let the process occur naturally. Um, how do you do epilum actually? Uh, so yeah, what you just described, right? You take it, you dip the part um, that needs to be coated and then you heat treat it. The heat treated apparently helps the um, epilum kind of stay on the part yeah so i mean and, and you, i mean you, I, I did both methods right like when i first started you know i was using epilum um i would just let it air dry right i'd let it sit for like five to ten minutes so i like pre would pre-coat the stuff first um yeah. let it air dry and then then later on um you know we got word that you know hey you should try using using heat to to seal to seal in the part when you're done so you know, started yeah. doing that as well I mean, there but, are varying degrees. Like, other people have also said that, like, um, you don't need to do either. You need cool air. You know, it, it's, so, it's so difficult right now. But there's yeah. so much R&D going into Epilum and trying to master that technique. Because a lot of problems come back because of improper Epilum coating. Um, believe it or not. Like, the watchmaker could have done everything right. And the watch still would come back maybe several months on before the service uh, cycle ends. And if you open it up, the escape is just covered in... In, in dirt and from the ruby and from the coating being rubbed off the entire time. Hmm. Yeah, but, uh, and so if, like just to keep everything kind of layman terms, epilum is a, a version of a pre-lubing. You know, like when you lube something up to to go in <laughs> to ensure a proper coating, it's essentially pre-lubing of, of a watch part to ensure longevity, so to speak. Yeah, man. All right, so let's, let's get into the next question, actually. Um, actually, there was someone who was asking the differences between Omega. Um, speaking of Omega, there are some people who were asking what the difference is between Omega uh, 18 versus 1861. Okay. Um, what are your thoughts on it, actually? Let me see if I can pull a better question. No, 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 you're good. No, no, go first. Go first. What are, what are your thoughts on it? Um, so the eight sixty one, the eight sixty one caliber. Um, there's, there's, I think like three different ones. There's one where it's just like a regular rhodium plate. There's one where it's, um, where it is a, it's plated, uh, but it's yellow. There's one where it's plated and looks like it's kind of like a pinkish yellow, like a, a pinkish movement color. So mm-hmm. here's the thing. The factory can't reproduce that pinkish gold color for the for the for the for the for the life of them. They just can't do it. They don't know what they oh, don't no. know what it is. I don't I don't know. But like when I was talking to them, they they weren't sure. And I was like, also same same question, right? When I was I was chatting with the guys from from the Omega factory and the Omega trainers, I was like, hey, so you know what's the what's the deal? They can't code yes. it. They they can't replicate the 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 older lines um and also to be you know 1861 has the has kind of like a, a more modern finish a modern kind of like look and style to it and they you know they put in new uh a, a kind of like a, a polyester or like a, a, a piece of plastic as a as a component in there movement now, I mean, this person is asking, a BH role actually, is asking um, the difference between the 1861 and the 1863. Um, he's read about the differences about the Delrin break in the mm-hmm. 1861. And then he was asking if there was any advantages over the steel break in the 1863. Um, so, you, it, I don't, except for the finish, because the movements that are armed with 1863 are... From my understanding, sapphire, sapphire face back. So it's more for aesthetics, right? So you can see, like, 
you know, the straight greening of the that break, and you can see the, the chronograph and the clutch, you know, activate and stuff. Whereas the United 1861 has the the kind of the plastic break, and I mean, I don't think it's wrong. I mean, I've worked on both of them, so over time, that that plastic break kind of like turns yellowish. Um, but functionality, it, it always, you know. I haven't seen any issues with it, right? Like, no, so they, they say, oh, go ahead. No, you can't wash that, correct? You can't wash plastic parts. They say you're not supposed to, but there are but, many times I have, <laughs> I have cleaned it. But I mean, the key is like, don't leave an ammonia. It'll, it'll dissolve it, right? Like, now, is it true? Is, is it cheaper? Would you say that the plastic is somewhat cheaper than the steel version? In ter- maybe in terms of quality? Um, I mean, it's one's plastic, one's one steel. I mean, I don't know what to tell I mean, Obviously, it, it's, it, it'll cost, I would think it costs more to produce a steel part than it would a plastic part. But, but in terms know. of quality, like, would you say, or would you say you didn't know, you don't notice a difference? No, so they say the plastic piece was used so that it doesn't eat away at the chronograph, the, the, the tooth, you know, when, when you activate the uh, start stop function, the, the kind of like clutches onto the chronograph wheel. Um, so they say it was for the longevity of that, um, but to be honest, I don't, I don't. I have, there like there may be like one or two occasions where I've seen that break really, really the plastic break being really bad or that metal break, like being you know misused for some odd reason, you know. Mm. Okay, well that's good. Now, at least we cleared that up. Uh, okay, so this is a good question. What in watchmaking surprised you when you first started? Huh. How it's like every other job, right? Every other industry. Um, so people think watchmaking, like they romanticize watchmaking, right? And sometimes maybe, yes, it, it has this bit of... Uh, honey, there's a honeymoon phase, but you know, if you work for like anyone, anyone else, there's there's KPIs you have to meet. There's like production numbers you have to ensure. There's productivity measurements that, like, you know, what I mean, it's very, yeah. um, it's like everything else. You know, like that. That's that's one thing that people don't understand, and I try to let them know that, hey, this is grass is always greener on the other side. And I was, you know, it was a good friend of mine on Colorado that we were chatting about. So she's like, you know, thinking about leaving a certain industry and like trying something else out. And I'm like, you know, you could do it, but don't, uh, don't quit right away, right? Don't, don't throw your eggs in one basket and just make yeah. sure that you're doing it the right way, right? Like, like if you want to start off by doing watchmaking, like change all the braces you can change, change, change all of them in your watch first, change, help, help your family members, you know, change neighbors' watches, yeah. you know, like that kind of stuff. And, and slowly, kind of like from there, Get into it. I agree with you. I think one of the things that did surprise me when I first started was the um, uh, I mean, when you go through watchmaking school, you're kind of just like you're kind of babied. I don't know, like, I guess that's a better term for today. I mean, I akin it to like I akin it to like bullies, like, you almost got to get punched in the mouth in watchmaking school so that when you come out, you gotta you, you know how to deal with um, all the bullies you're gonna experience in the industry. Um, yeah. Not to say bullies or anything, but like when you go to the retail side, like how much you like, you're not treated like you're some sort of genius or whatnot. Like they say, explain it to you when you're watching food. They, it, I mean, they promise you the world. They tell you to be anything you want to be. Um, and when you go out into the real world, it's not always that case. You know, like you get treated like a second class citizen practically as a watchmaker in the retail side. Um, and then in the service side, it, it's, I mean, you have to fight. You almost have to make the decision between quality and quantity because they expect you to have a high amount of productivity while keeping your quality. And they also want you to have X amount of quantity per week or per day. Hello. All right. I think we lost Henry. Let's see if we have some technical difficulties here. But yeah, um, until Henry gets connected back, we'll we'll keep going. So, oh, Henry, you're back. Okay. 
So yeah, no, like I was saying, I just I just feel like people people need to have that re- reality side of watchmaking, know what to expect up front, and so they don't encounter this when uh, they enter the industry and be completely blindsided. I mean, a lot of people end up quitting the industry altogether. Yeah, I, I mean, that 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 last bit you said completely resonates with me because I know really good watchmakers, good people that I've met in watchmaking that are no longer watchmaking because of how you know they felt they treated. were being yeah uh, not represented you know I mean? or and, uh, represented, uh, so. like all these a lot of these people a lot of these kids or a lot of these students who are coming right out of school they 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 expect to come out becoming the next. Daniels, or they expect to come out becoming the next person who creates the best, you know, watchmaking watch possible. But what the reality side of it is that they end up coming out of just working at a service. And, and listen, there's nothing wrong with that, right? Like, there's nothing, nothing wrong with coming out and wanting to change the world. Um, there are people who are doing it, right? Like, if they have enough time, money, or resources, obviously. Sky's your limit. Yeah, but uh, I mean, it's tough, man. I think um, what I've also found were that um, people who get full ride scholarships to these watchmaking schools, where they don't have to pay a single dime for, are actually more susceptible to quitting the industry when they come out. Um, simply because they they have no vested interest in it other than the time that they've spent. So the more they spend in the field of watchmaking through schooling, uh, the more they're actually inclined to stay within the industry. Um, that's just what I found. That's just what I've heard. And that's just, that's just me when I like dealing with some of these graduates who come out. Yeah. Listen, there's something to be said for the process, right? Sometimes, um, you know, how many times have you went to school? Like I personally uh, graduated uh, or I hold a bachelor's in accounting, right? Have I used it? Uh, maybe two years when I was, you know, in IB. Um, and then, like, I went right back in watchmaking, right? So it's like there's there's nothing wrong with that, you know? Nothing wrong with finding, you know, what excites you or what doesn't excite you early on as opposed to being miserable. Yeah, I always recommend people just, like. just to try it out first. Just tinker it. Don't, sign, don't be brash. Don't be impulsive. Just get a cheap clone. Get some tweezers get some screwdrivers and just take it apart put it back on do it for about a month see if you find some sort of passion and joy and go from there yeah i mean so here's the thing right like once you start tinkering, <laughs> you're gonna realize like this sucks right like you know like you're gonna be like oh damn like i messed this part up or, yeah like, that wasn't you know that's no good you know so and there are times when like you could try, try to do everything right and then like you still kind of like mess something up and you're like like you sh- you feel like shit right like uh, you, uh, there are many times where I've worked on a watch and it's like I like I did everything I thought it was supposed to do right and then like I still kind of like I was like damn like I need a part or like I need this thing or I need that thing and you know like, yeah. you, you have to kind of work with what you got yeah. okay I mean uh, blah, blah, blah. okay what are your thoughts on modding a watch And like what's um, because there was a there was like a recent thing I, where some you know, celebrity had personally. a skeletonized Rolex, um, and then you know you got uh, other celebrities with like a completely all black Rolex. You got other people who have like yeah, you know they got other people who modded the oh, living life out of their watches. Um, I, I mean, in support of the freedom of doing whatever the hell you want to do, I think they should be allowed to do it. But just know that when they go back to the manufacturer, the manufacturer mm-hmm. always has a responsibility of providing you with some sort of warranty. And because they need to provide you with some sort of warranty, they're going to ensure that every single part of that watch is calculated. So if you modded, modded your watch, there's nothing wrong with modding your watch. If you want to do it, do it. You know, like I believe in do whatever the hell you want to do. But if you bring it to the manufacturer or the brand itself, they're going to want to convert it back to the original piece. Because only then can they be sure that it is water resistant and that is, is that it is actually going to perform the way it's supposed to perform. Um, yeah, I mean that's just my thoughts on it. You know, it's funny you say that, right? Because um, 
like I have, you know, some extremely private like clients who who enjoy watchmaking to the point where it's like, here's a movement. Can you work your best finishing on this? Can you black polish your screws? Can you, you know, chamfer, um, you know, chamfering and glage on the the bridges and kind of like the whole like nine yeah. yards of like make my movement as beautiful as you can. Right. Like, <laughs> like draw me like one of your Titanic, French girls, yeah. uh, you know, to quote the Titanic. Right. Yeah. But I mean, so I don't think, you know, to what, to your point, I don't think that there's something, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, it's, you know, it's their wall. It's like, if you have a car, yeah. right, you, you could put a tint on the car if you want, or you could change the wheels if you, you know, if you want the rims and the wheels and all that stuff. Um, However, I, I don't think it's the manufacturer's fault, or I don't think the manufacturer, um, to my knowledge, like if you go to Rolex, like a PVD, like a blacked out, decked out watch, I don't think they're, I don't think they're taking those in. No, like if you go to Rolex and you have like a, like a, no, all like they they actually, actually make you. Well, the funny thing, they the funny thing about Rolex, they can actually if they find like three or a couple, they're more than like a couple three. Three or more than ah, what the hell am I trying to say? If they find more than three or more pieces that are non-genuine, no they have the ability to deem the entire watch counterfeit. Even though, let's just say everything, like the everything else in the watch is real and legit, uh, they find three or more pieces. They have that ability. Now, whether they want to exercise it, that's on them. Um, and even then, let's just say you modded out your diamond bezel or what you modded out a bezel and you turned it into a diamond, or you modded your case. Even then, they would also still have the ability to keep it and go forward with saying you can pay for a new case, um, and, uh, but we're going to keep it. Or they can be nice. Most of the time, they're nice and they'll send it back to you. Um, if you send in a fake watch, like a completely fake watch, then they also reserve the right to actually keep it and discard it altogether, uh, contrary to what everyone, anyone believes. Um, and I guess uh, uh, people think that What's just the because they, it's their watch, even though it's fake, that when they send it in for repair, even the people believe that even though it's their watch, they have the right to get it back. Um, but uh, 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 <laughs> the way Rolex sees it is, it's their IP. It's their IP. You know what I mean? It's kind of like saying someone's gonna yeah. walk around, and, and people I mean, get I get flack for this all, all the time. Explain this to some people. Um, it's kind of like if you're walking around the street with someone's stolen identity, even though you probably you you probably unquote unquote paid for it and you didn't know it was that person's identity and you have their social security and all that, and then you find and someone finds your, the real individual, they have the ability to take all that back no matter how much you paid for that, because at the end of the day it's not yours. So the way Rolex says is, um, yeah. I remember seeing several letters from them. It was hilarious. Uh, uh, not hilarious in the sense where the client's going to lose their peace, but it's hilarious in the, sense, in the way they, they, they worded it. They're like, I forgot the exact terminology, but they're like, um, please let us know how you, how you would like, uh, how you would like us to, um, disintegrate it or something like that, or discard it. They, they use some sort of phrase. It was hilarious because it was, it was in the sense where they're like, they're just going to throw it out. Um, <laughs> how should, yeah, it so was, it was one like a, a one-page letter, like detailing terminology. It was just like, yeah. Do you want? How, We're gonna throw you, it out. Exactly. They're like, how do you want to deal with this? Long story short, but we're gonna throw it out. Would you guys like us to just like disintegrate it? I was just like, holy crap, you know? And yeah. So, yeah, Audemars Piguet has the same policy. So he's worked for AP, right? And obviously, when you work for like you know such a such a hot watchmaking brand. Um, you see all types of like yeah. good fakes, shitty fakes, bad fakes, and once it gets sent over to AP, it's like, sorry, bud, you know, I, you, I know you probably paid you know decent money thinking this was a real AP, but you're not gonna get this back. We're gonna just like at the end of the year, there's a there's a vault they have that they throw all the fake APs in there, and and they just like destroy the hell out of it, you know, for better lack of terms. And yeah, it's it's their, their brand property, right? So like. I also equate this, you equate this to a stolen identity. I equate this to a stolen car, right? Because a stolen car is more relatable. You purchased the car. You thought it was a real car. You thought all this stuff was, was legitimate. But at the, at the end of yes. the day, it's not. It was a stolen car to begin with. It belonged to someone else. 
right? So that's now. Did they ever let like, you authenticate at the boutique yeah. level or at the at yeah. the at the client level? No, right? Nope. Um. So we can do uh, uh, very vague testing, but if they want like official certification and 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 um, paperwork saying that this is a certified AP, it has to come from either Switzerland. Or had to come from uh, clear. Yeah, because a lot of these companies now, they actually. I remember a lot of these companies. They were they reached out to all of us, and they were saying that um, no one is really allowed to authenticate at the store level. So if you just just for anyone that's listening and you watching through this or whatnot, if you have a rash, if you have a reason to believe your watch is fake, I would recommend you bring it to your trusted watchmaker or whatnot. But if you bring it to a regular boutique or a brand level, you walk in there, they don't have the ability to – they can offer you their opinion. So no matter what they say to you, it's really just their opinion. Because when they send that watch in and they, they find out that it's actually fake, that's when uh, – like a lot of these companies, they have several individuals within the company that can actually authenticate it by searching through the archives and searching through the history. But for the most part, anyone else on the store level uh, – do, does not have the ability to authenticate or anything. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I don't. And yeah. for some of the watchmakers who yeah, are listening, sure. one of the things, one of these things that the brand brands actually do, and you should, they should probably do too in their terms of agreement, is to say that the estimate itself does not mean get, providing the estimate to the client does not mean that they are authenticating the watch. Because there are many times where just in the pro- and just for the sake of speed and doing a, an estimate, they don't open up the watch sometimes. I don't recommend that at all. I recommend everyone open up their watches when they're doing estimates. But sometimes in the, for the sake of speed, they do it and they look at the watch. They, they look at the general concepts. They know the model already. They, don't, they know what they need in that movement. They don't even open up the watch sometimes. And in the process of providing the estimate and when they're taking it apart the watch, they find out that it's fake long after the client has already accepted the estimate. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Yeah, there's, um, there's I feel like a lot of brands have been contingencies. Yeah, for I, I'm just saying sometimes the like don't. Uh, sometimes they just, there's like a, a trust factor with the clients kind of, uh, you know, so. Yeah. And so somebody once uh, told me, Finding a good watchmaker is equivalent to finding a good a good person yeah, cutting I mean, your hair, a good, good tradesman, like, exactly. Um, make your suits, you know, like it's yeah, it's important to have someone like that in your pocket, or or even like you know, you know, sometimes everyone has their accountant, they have their lawyers, you know, like they have their own team of people doing different things. It's it's important to have someone you trust work on, you know, the the yeah, stuff. I agree. Your watches for you. Um, and then in other news, speaking of that, uh, speaking of like skill level, like did you hear that Trump just signed like the executive order yesterday that the government um, is going to be making changes to uh, hiring requirements? So the having a college degree is going to be um, not as heavily influenced in the job making process. I'm, I'm not sure if that's only for government officials or, or, or government related jobs or if that's for everybody yet, but they Oh, so government. No, oh, I think okay. that's I think for that. government-related jobs. That like they're on skill putting emphasis. The federal government putting emphasis on. Oh no! Like so, more more so, uh, um, experience. Like what you can do, as mm. opposed to what the paper says you can do, which is um, which is a good shift because I know amazing smart people who oh, yeah. don't have college degrees. Right. College degrees, like, you know, Elon Musk said, like, you know, colleges, Harvard is, is, a, is a great place, you know, to get an education because most of the guys who work for him are from Harvard, but it doesn't mean yeah. that's the only place to get an education. Right. Okay. So just moving on to the next couple of questions. We have, we have time for a couple more questions. Um, blah, blah, blah. Okay. What is your advice for, okay. So, so this person, this person is just graduating from Washington school. He, he's asking uh, what, what advices do we have for him when he graduates? Like, what are our top advices? Not, so I, I have to caveat this, this answer with, with um, a statement, right? Not all schools, Washington schools, um, 
arm you with the same knowledge, right? Some Washington schools have their methods of doing things because it suits kind of their, their production lines. So with that kind of said, it depends if you were trained to go to work for Swatch Group or whether you were trained to work for Rolex. So, uh, it, they both are good, you know, um, it's just, I feel like it, depending on where your skill set is, you might need to go into something else to, to acquire that, that, uh, uh, missing skill set. So, no, I don't, I don't know think that helps. So. I mean, I, I, I long roundabout way I, of I, answering I, your question helps the person yeah, no, no, you said, like assess, oh, go ahead. I would say just assess where you're currently at, assess where you want to be, and then I know, think kind um, of jump the gun and go for it. I agree with you. I, I also think that a lot of these watchmaking students, they should be working on watches um, on the side already at home in this, uh, during schooling. Um, instead of work, because here's the thing. Here's how I feel. I feel like in watchmaking school, it's this perfect scenario laid out for you already. There's, it's a very controlled environment so the movements they introduce to your adventures the 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 the, what they ask you to do is very controlled when you go onto the field sometimes there's just this element of like it it doesn't make sense sometimes there's going to be elements that just simply do not make sense like i don't know why someone would would adjust this or i don't know why this would uh even why someone would even break this or how did this even occur in some logical sense, we can always trace everything backwards and see where it occurred, but I feel like that chaotic element needs to be introduced at some some point through the schooling. So, how I feel is that the person, one, should already be working on watches during the schooling process, and if they have any questions, they have the ability to reach out to the instructor. And then two, when they graduate, to expect to eat shit for the first like several years. I mean, you're going to have to do on the job experience for another five to 10. Easy. I mean, they're going to eat shit. I mean, long story short. I mean, whether it's verbal shit from employees or coworkers or just like shit from clients, I mean, you're going to be eating shit. It's not this glamorous thing where you come out and you're like in this beautiful, like watchmaking promotional video, you know, and you're wearing your lab coat. And I don't know. it's not. But Anthony, exactly I thought not. that's what watchmaking was all about. But look, I mean, here's the thing. Please, the more you make more. people aware of it, the, the more realistic expectations they have going to the field. That's... I think that's like that everywhere, right? Like, just, 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 just look at this. Like, I mean, if you're a doctor, I mean, your goal is to save lives, right? But let's be realistic. There are times yeah. when people die in your hands too, right? Like, you you you, you kind of have to. But see, to, like the the problem I had was like even with like kind TV, of... like let's like, let's talk about doctors. You had like shows like Grey's Anatomy and what whatever the hell, where they uh, they're always like um, glorify these positions. But at the same time, in these shows, there you see the re- you see some sort. I don't want to say realistic. But you see some sort of concept where the characters are eating shit. Where do you see in watchmaking where watchmakers are eating shit in some sort of promotional video, like? There was this movie with Pierce Brosnan, who was the watchmaker, who was a watchmaker apparently, and somehow because of his watchmaking skills, he becomes a, like a skilled assassin because he's so detailed and OCD and precise. Like, no. <laughs> Wait, you're, you're I'm telling just me you're saying, not like, a skilled don't assassin? Don't get me wrong. You can some of those <laughs> some of those traits in watchmaking can carry over into fat like facets of watchmaking can carry over into anything in your life. And just like you can really say that about anything, honestly, but more more applicable sometimes is watchmaking because of the whole analytical skill. But if you look at all these schools and all these companies, all these brands, like or anybody who's talking about watchmaking schooling or whatnot, there's always this glorification aspect of it. No one's gonna no no one tells you that like, look, this is great and all, but when you come out, you're gonna be eating shit. You know, you're gonna be you're gonna be dealing with a lot of uh, issues for the first several years of your life you know like watchmaking school can only cover so much um i mean that that speaks to the reality of schooling itself a proper education right so like um 
I think I'm pretty sure most schools like help you or they already intake client watches for free. So it gives the student like more hands-on experience, but you know, you're, you're right. right? Nothing beats the, the fact that you need to um, make mistakes to grow. Experience is the best way. <laughs> I almost feel like some uh, watchmakers should have like this one, one whole month or one whole, one whole section of their uh, schooling dedicated to, eating shit just like just like look guys you guys are gonna be dealing with some tough shit here's some tough love during this whole next month <laughs> just like <laughs> and just put them through the whole ringer just just like look you guys are worthless you guys you guys suck like, like you know what you know, I, like, you know what I just think. bring him down bring him down back to reality a little bit like look you guys ain't shit <laughs> yeah you guys are gonna eat shit like like here's some here's some impossible so oh, have sure. a like sort of have week. a hell week yeah, for students. Way to set it, actually, some sort of hell week. Twenty four hours serious. of fixing fixing eight four movements. Just say like here, there are eight watches you. on your desk. You need to complete this within twenty four hours. If you can't, you're gonna fail. <laughs> or some shit like that. You know what I mean? Like, and just during the entire process of when they're working watches, have someone interrupt them at all times. Just like every five minutes, have like some. Yeah. Hey, can you change a strap? Hey, can you change a bracelet? Like a hey, can you size this for me? Blowing dust on their, blowing dust on their bed, just, just like eat this shit. <laughs> I don't want to go to I your can school. Guarantee you, though, when they come out of that school, there will be some tough watchmakers right there. They're not leaving the field anymore. <laughs> <laughs> they invest all, all the sure. time and all the dust. Oh all, yeah, you think I'm kidding? I think, I think, hell week, so. I think that'll be a really cool. I mean, I think from a, from a from an instructor or teacher's perspective, that'll be a really look. What what is a teacher supposed to do? They're supposed to set you up for success. They're supposed to teach you just enough for you. No, sure, they to guide you. Yes, they're <laughs> supposed, to they're supposed to arm yeah, you with the right. knowledge. But what I'm trying to say is this: see, why? Okay. A teacher's goal, long story short, I mean, my my goal as a, if I was a teacher or if I was an instructor, my goal if I was to have, I mean, someone's doing, is so that by the time they're done with the course, they're given the tools to be ready for uh, uh, reality, right? Uh, to go into the real world. If they can't think on their own, I've, I did not complete my job. If I did not teach them how to fish instead of just giving them the fish, I failed as an instructor. So... Bringing coming back to the joke of Hell Week, like if 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 they leave that Hell Week, let's just say we call it Hell Week, like if they leave that Hell Week, knowing how to overcome like all these obstacles or mentally having some sort of idea of what they expect, then they will be better equipped when they go out into the real world, as opposed to being in this controlled environment the entire time, no one interrupting them, giving them their space. Uh, uh, like you said, no one, no one coming to them to ask for strap bracelet changes. There's no dust accumulations, you know. Like that's one thing you have to worry about. That the, the, these are all these aspects of what you have to worry about when you come out into the uh, industry. I can imagine the no bullshit watchmaking, uh, the ad, the advertisement you would have for your school. Like, come learn watch. Like, it starts off in a white lab coat. Like, come learn watchmaking. Learn the eight, like time tradition of you know ancient artisans and then like it breaks into like your hell week like, <laughs> working in a fucking dungeon with like <laughs> with like no lights and someone's like a, a crew of people screaming in their face and hosing <laughs> them down with water while they're trying to fix these like four movements like as if their lives depended on it because if not anthony would be like you you, you fucking are not worthy of ha- having my certificate and leaving my school get back in your fucking dungeon okay. and let me ask you this though having a slave <laughs> You being a watchmaker in the field, do you not think some variation of that will benefit a watchmaker coming out from school? Like the fact that we we can say that it will benefit speaks volumes. Is what I'm trying to say. Like, so all right, on to that point, right? I I feel like yeah, yes, um, but they should. So watchmaking schools should also focus on other aspects, right? Just just look at just say traditional schooling. If you leave high school, it doesn't arm you with, I mean, most high schools don't arm you with knowledge of uh, fixing car tires. Uh, like there's, there's no like a version of shop class. There's no like how to manage your finance if you're, you know, like 
if you're going into the world because everyone in high school assumes that you'll be going to college. And, you know, yeah, even some colleges don't teach kind of like skills, yep. essential business skills, right? Like, and I feel like that, 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 that should be, that should be at least taught like, you know, a month or two months or have a, a separate module where watchmakers leaving can understand like, how do, how do you, how much does it cost to set up your own shop? Uh, you know, what's the business logic, you know, what, what's the business logic of how do I make my life easier if I take this? I can yeah, save me money in the long run because I don't have to run these mistakes, right? Like, like smarter choice to make smarter choices earlier on is important, right? To to be aware of this stuff is important, as opposed to not being aware of it, right? Because like a, a lot of people leaving school, like you know, let's say you service the movement really fucking well, right? Like you can you're you're an amazing uh, yeah. watchmaker when it comes to like certain movements, right? But then let's say you know to service the movement, it takes you fucking okay. a week okay. for one movement, right? It could be the best movement ever. From a KPI production productivity standpoint, yeah, that doesn't, that, that shit won't fly. Good luck. Because right? like, you spend a week on one movement, like, I don't care how, how good yeah. the fuck movement are, get your pack your shit and get the fuck out. <laughs> so it's like, it, there's certain like things that need so to So let me ask you this, if right? you had like, your own school, like, and you want to introduce that some, missing, somebody into that? I would. Yeah, I, I would. I mean, I would teach a, so I would teach the business por- portion. Of okay, it. like I'd be like, that's true. Like, here's how you deal with an angry client. Here's you know, these are the steps you would do. Like, like it, it could be a course in itself. Like, how do you, how do you manage other people's expectations? How do you make sure that you're not over promise? You're not promising the person the okay. moon oh, and uh, okay. giving them a I agree. Fuck <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I said I agree way too soon. Did I expect? <laughs> I said agree, and then you said I'll stop. <laughs> All right. But see, here, gotcha, sucker. I mean, see? look, just to clarify. ABCs, baybe. Always be closing. Like, I'm not trying to say that I want to torture students. I, I don't want you to get – I don't want people to get the idea at all. But what I am trying to say is Wait. I want to mentally no, prepare them. That's the like, idea. I want them to go through – because here's my point. If they go through – like, I want them to say that schooling was so, so much more difficult than anything they experienced in real life. That's, that's my point. Okay. See, I, I, I get, I get the direction. You, you know what I mean? Like, Instead, I want them to come out yes, and be like, I don't care right. who's um, talking to me or what salesperson or service uh, uh, associates talking to me. And you, you know what I mean? Like, I want them to be so mentally prepared that they, they look at this with so much confidence. The problem is that when these fresh watchmaking students graduate and they come out and into this retail side or even just a service center, they crack under the pressure. And and you can you can see the you can see the. It's the student in them coming out, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that, but there's nothing wrong with going through that phase. Like everyone's going to go through it. Like I've gone through it certainly myself, but the, it's the crack that occurs. Like I don't want, like I'd much rather them crack in school than crack outside in the real life. Like it's kind of like saying, would you rather get punched by a relative than get punched by someone outside? You know what I mean? Like, uh, or, or even like sweat more or su- nothing like getting punched. Yeah, like getting you know, punched or, by, or, uh, by a relative on your birthday. Or like, I can attest to that firsthand. Like, Happy birthday. Or like uh, uh, sweating, oh. more in com- uh, sweating more in training than, and bleeding less in, in combat or whatever the hell. Uh, like, that's what I'm trying to get at. All I'm trying to get at is I want these, like, if, if I had my own school, like, maybe not as bad as what, what we just depicted it to be, but some variation where it's a chaotic environment and they have to struggle. It's a huge struggling process. They have to find out which the multi like how to multitask, how to do this better, how to do that better, how to focus when everything around them is crumbling. You know, this this sounds like a, a History Channel television reality television show you're pitching. Learn watchmaking from us. We will make sure that if you graduate this, you can you can tackle that, anything. That, I think uh, I think that's a good TV show. If you ask me, <laughs> just like just have. <laughs> Just, because we're gonna hose you down. We're gonna scream in your face. It'll be like hell week, but you have to fix the movements. And if the movements aren't done, you're gonna have to like eat it up and like I mean, do it again. I don't know. I think some variation of that. I mean, what, I mean, look, people who are listening. Like, if you're a watchmaker and you're listening and you agree, comment. You know, like, or if you agree with some some variation of this, like a lot of the a lot of people criticize these watchmaking students who come out because for some reason in this industry, there's this like a uh, schooling versus real life experience. Uh, uh, people who didn't graduate from schooling versus people who graduated from schooling, uh, one side always feels like they're better. I feel like you need a combination of both. 
okay? Because there's some size in theory that everyone needs, and there's some size of real life application everyone needs. Whereas, like the biggest criticism of from the side that people who didn't graduate from school of, of, for the people who did graduate from school is that the people who graduate from school are soft. Uh, they don't know anything yet. You know, they 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 don't have that experience. And don't get me wrong, five to ten years of real life on the job experience will eventually get you that. I get that. But why not prepare them early for success, somewhat earlier on during the schooling process, and give them that flair, give them that taste of it. Yeah, I mean, so this go this like so. I mean, what you're talking about, there are organizations that that kind of set set up set people up to succeed, right? Like Jocko Wilnick. So he's he was a former uh, uh, special forces spec ops um, Navy SEAL operator, and you know he does leadership courses like that, right? Like there are places where they set you up to succeed, to be the best uh, you can be, right? And I feel like let's say even after you graduate watchmaking school or even if you're currently in the field like learning metrics learning how to like you know like here's a like here's a tried and tested script on how to like manage someone's expectation on what you know a a service proposal should look like or or how do you like if a person asks you this question why does it cost this much you know this is this is kind of your response right so i mean not even not even just for watchmaking for like every field should have like if you you're a lawyer like you know, you should have a business field, right? You should have a field where people learn how you how you yeah. run your own firm. You know, issues you run into. You know, when you go, when it comes to to pricing yourself out between the larger firms and yourself, because you know, guess what? That translate that translates into every other field. Like, what differentiates me, my my small little workshop compared to Omegas or Audemars Piguet's, like you know, yeah. fifty thousand square foot facility. You know what I mean? No, man. I think um, so. I think I mean, look. I think this was a great. I think this was a great episode. I think we've um, I think we've already been in a, like close to an hour and ten uh, hour and ten minutes in. So I think it's a good time to call it a call it a day. What do you think? You got? You think? Yeah, I think we can answer more next yeah. time. Um, I think it was a good episode. I think um, for for anyone who who list for everyone who listened, if they have any thoughts or comments on any any specific things or if they want us to expound or anything just just comment below or let us know um but i think that was good i think the the towards the end the the whole watchmaking school thing was pretty good uh good advice solid advice yeah uh, i mean because look at how unarmed you know a, a generation yeah. of watchmakers are now you know so like this this stuff that that we learned or that i learned you know like hands-on doing the stuff like set me up for this but a lot of other people who don't have the luxury or who don't have that kind of expertise don't know how to go about it right like is it worth it for them to set up a shop is it worth it for them to go work for someone yeah. else gain experience and then set up a shop you know what i mean like that whole metrics come come comes all right guys well so we're gonna call it a day here so if you guys enjoyed the episode please like and subscribe um if you have anything you guys want to share uh, again, you can reach out to Henry, Henry uh, at Hen- uh, at L-Y-Y, or Watchmaking Project. Um, other than that, guys, hope you guys have a good day and take care.